This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 24 and 25, from Kidnapped, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And now, chapter 24, The Flight in the Heather, The Quarrel. Alan and I were put across Loch Eracht under cloud of night, and went down its eastern shore to another hiding place near the head of Loch Rannock, whither we were led by one of the gillies from the cage. This fellow carried all our luggage and Alan's greatcoat in the bargain, trotting along under the burden, far less than half of which used to weigh me to the ground, like a stout-hilled pony with a feather. Yet he was a man that, in plain contest, I could have broken on my knee. Doubtless it was great relief to walk disencumbered, and perhaps without that relief and the consequent sense of liberty and lightness, I could not have walked at all. I was but new risen from a bed of sickness, and there was nothing in the state of our affairs to hearten me for much exertion, traveling as we did over the most dismal deserts in Scotland, under a cloudy heaven, and with divided hearts among the travelers. For long we said nothing, marching alongside or one behind the other, each with a set countenance. I, angry and proud, drawing what strength I had from these two violent and sinful feelings, Alan angry and ashamed, ashamed that he had lost my money, angry that I should take it so ill. The thought of a separation ran always the stronger in my mind, and the more I approved of it, the more ashamed I grew of my approval. It would be a fine, handsome, generous thing indeed for Alan to turn round and say to me, Go. I am in the most danger, and my company only increases yours. But for me to turn to the friend who certainly loved me and say to him, You are in great danger. I am in but little. Your friendship is a burden. Go, take your risks, and bear your hardships alone. No, that was impossible, and even to think of it privily to myself made my cheeks burn. And yet Alan had behaved like a child, and what is worse, a treacherous child. Wheedling my money from me while I lay half-conscious was scarce better than theft, 
"'and yet here he was trudging by my side, "'without a penny to his name, "'and by what I could see, "'quite blithe to sponge upon the money "'he had driven me to beg. "'True, I was ready to share it with him, "'but it made me rage to see him count upon my readiness. "'These were the two things uppermost in my mind, "'and I could open my mouth upon neither "'without black on generosity. "'So I did the next worst, and said nothing, "'nor so as much as looked once at my companion, "'save with the tail of my eye. "'At last, upon the other side of Loch Erach, "'going over a smooth, rushy place, "'where the walking was easy, "'he could bear it no longer, and came close to me.' "'David,' says he, "'this is no way for two friends to take a small accident. "'I have to say that I'm sorry, and so that's said. "'And now if you have anything, you'd better say it.' "'Oh,' says I, "'I have nothing.' "'He seemed disconcerted, at which I was meanly pleased. "'No,' said he, with a rather trembling voice. "'But when I say I was to blame?' "'Why, of course you are to blame,' says I, coolly.' "'and you'll bear me out that I've never reproached you.' "'Never,' says he. "'But ye can very well that ye've done worse. "'Are we to part? "'You said so once before. "'Are ye to say it again? "'There's hills and heather enough between here and the two seas, David, "'and I will own I'm no very keen to stay where I'm no wanted.' "'This pierced me like a sword, "'and seemed to lay bare my private disloyalty. "'Alan Breck!' I cried, and then— "'Do you think I'm one to turn my back on you in your chief need? "'You durst say it to my face. "'My whole conduct's there to give the lie to it. "'It's true. "'I fell asleep upon the muir. "'But that was from weariness. "'And you do wrong to cast it up to me.' "'Which is what I never did,' said Alan. "'But aside from that,' I continued, "'what have I done that you should even meet at dogs by such a supposition? "'I never yet failed a friend, "'and it's not likely I'll begin with you.' "'There are things between us that I can never forget, "'even if you can.' "'Said Alan, "'I will only say this to ye, David,' "'said Alan, very quietly, "'that I'd long been owing ye my life, "'and now I owe ye money. "'Ye should try to make that burden light for me.' "'This ought to have touched me, "'and in a manner it did, "'but the wrong manner. "'I felt I was behaving badly, "'and was now not only angry with Alan, "'but angry with myself in the bargain.' "'and it made me the more cruel. "'You ask me to speak,' said I. "'Well, then I will. "'You own yourself that you've done me a disservice. "'I've had to swallow an affront. "'I've never reproached you. "'I never named the thing till you did. "'And now you blame me?' cried I. "'Because I cannot laugh and sing "'as if I was glad to be affronted. "'The next thing will be that I'm to go down upon my knees "'and thank you for it. "'You should think more of others, Alan Brick, "'if you thought more of others.' "'You'd perhaps speak less about yourself. "'And when a friend that likes you very well "'has passed over an offense without a word, "'you'd be blithe to let it lie, "'instead of making it a stick to break his back with. "'By your own way of it, "'it was you that was to blame. "'Then it should not be you to seek the quarrel. "'Awee,' said Alan. "'Say no more.' "'And we fell back into our former silence "'and came to our journey's end, "'and supped and lay down to sleep.' "'without another word. "'The gilly put us across Loch Rannick "'in the dusk of the next day, "'and gave us his opinion as to our best route. "'This was to get us up at once "'into the tops of the mountains, "'to go round by a circuit, "'turning the heads of Glen Lyon, "'Glen Lockay, and Glen Delcart, 
"'and come down upon the lowlands by Kippen "'and the upper waters of the Forth. "'Alan was little pleased with a route "'which led us through the country of his blood foes, "'the Glenarchy Campbells. "'He objected that by turning to the east "'we should come almost at once among the Athol Stuarts, "'a race of his own name and lineage, "'although following a different chief, "'and come besides by a far easier and swifter way "'to the place whither we were bound. "'But the gilly, who was indeed the chief man of Clooney's scouts, "'had good reasons to give him on all hands.' "'naming the force of troops in every district, "'and alleging finally, as well as I could understand, "'that we should nowhere be so little troubled "'as in a country of the Campbells. "'Allen gave way at last, but with only half a heart. "'It's one of the dowiest countries in Scotland,' said he. "'There's nothing there that I can, but heath and crows and Campbells. "'But I see that you're a man of some penetration, "'and be it as you please. "'We set forth accordingly by this itinerary.' and for the best part of three nights traveled on eerie mountains and among the wellheads of wild rivers, often buried in mist, almost continually blown and rained upon, and not once cheered by any glimpse of sunshine. By day we lay and slept in the drenching heather. By night incessantly clambered upon breakneck hills and among rude crags. We often wandered, we were so often involved in fog, that we must lie quiet till it lightened. A fire was never to be thought of. Our only food was drammock, and a portion of cold meat that we had carried from the cage, and as for drink, heaven knows we had no want of water. This was a dreadful time, rendered the more dreadful by the gloom of the weather and the country. I was never warm, my teeth chattered in my head, I was troubled with a very sore throat, such as I had on the aisle, I had a painful stitch in my side, which never left me, and when I slept in my wet bed, with the rain beating above and the mud oozing below me, it was to live over again in fancy the worst part of my adventures, to see the Tower of Shaws lit by lightning, Ransom carried below on the men's backs, Schwann dying on the roundhouse floor, or Colin Campbell grasping at the bosom of his coat. From such broken slumbers I would be aroused in the gloaming to sit up in the same puddle where I had slept and sup cold drammock, the rain driving sharp in my face or running down my back in icy trickles, the mist enfolding us like as in a gloomy chamber, or perhaps, if the wind blew, falling suddenly apart and showing us the gulf of some dark valley where the streams were crying aloud. The sound of an infinite number of rivers came up from all around. In this steady rain the springs of the mountain were broken up. Every glen gushed water like a cistern. Every stream was in high spate and had filled and overflowed its channel. During our night tramps, it was solemn to hear the voice of them below in the valleys, now booming like thunder, now with an angry cry. I could well understand the story of the water kelpie, that demon of the streams, who is fabled to keep wailing and roaring at the ford until the coming of the doomed traveler. Alan, I saw, believed it, or half believed it, and when the cry of the river rose more than usually sharp, I was little surprised, though, of course, I would still be shocked, to see him cross himself in the manner of the Catholics. During all these horrid wanderings we had no familiarity, scarcely even that of speech. The truth is that I was sickening for my grave, which is my best excuse. But besides that, I was of an unforgiving disposition from my birth, slow to take offense, slower to forget it, and now incensed both against my companion and myself. For the best part of two days he was unweariedly kind, silent, indeed, but always ready to help, and always hoping, as I could very well see, that my displeasure would blow by. 
for the same length of time I stayed in myself, nursing my anger, roughly refusing his services, and passing him over with my eyes as if he'd been a bush or a stone. The second night, or rather the peep of the third day, found us upon a very open hill, so that we could not follow our usual plan and lie down immediately to eat and sleep. Before we had reached a place of shelter, the gray had become pretty clear, for though it still rained, the clouds ran higher, and Alan, looking in my face, showed some marks of concern. "'You'd better let me take your pack,' said he, for perhaps the ninth time since we'd parted from the scout beside Lacharanic. "'I can do very well, thank you,' said I, as cold as ice. Alan flushed darkly. "'I'll not offer it again,' he said. "'I'm not a patient man, David.' "'I never said you were,' said I, "'which was exactly the rude, silly speech of a boy of ten. "'Alan made no answer at the time, "'but his conduct answered for him. "'Henceforth, it is to be thought, "'he quite forgave himself for the affair at Clooney's, "'cocked his hat again, walked jauntily, whistled airs, "'and looked at me upon one side with a provoking smile. "'The third night we were to pass through the western end "'of the country of Balcohitter.' It became clear and cold, with a touch in the air like frost, and a northerly wind that blew the clouds away and made the stars bright. The streams were full, of course, and still made a great noise among the hills, but I observed that Alan thought no more upon the Kelpie, and was in high good spirits. As for me, the change of weather came too late. I had lain in the mire so long, that as the Bible has it, my very clothes abhorred me. I was dead weary, deadly sick, "'and full of pains and shiverings. "'The chill of the wind went through me, "'and the sound of it confused my ears. "'In this poor state I had to bear from my companion "'something in the nature of persecution. "'He spoke a good deal, "'and never without a taunt. "'Wig was the best name he had to give me. "'Here,' he would say, "'here's a dub for you to jump, my wiggy. "'I ken you're a fine jumper.' "'And so on, all the time, "'with a jibing voice and face.' I knew it was my own doing, and no one else's, but I was too miserable to repent. I felt I could drag myself but little farther. Pretty soon I must lie down and die upon these wet mountains like a sheep or a fox, and my bones must whiten there like the bones of a beast. My head was light, perhaps, but I began to love the prospect. I began to glory in the thought of such a death, alone in the desert, with the wild eagles besieging my last moments. Alan would repent then, I thought. He would remember, when I was dead, how much he owed me, and the remembrance would be torture. So I went like a sick, silly, and bad-hearted schoolboy, feeding my anger against a fellow man, when I would have been better on my knees, crying on God for mercy, and that each of Alan's taunts I hugged myself. Ah, thinks I to myself, I have a better taunt in readiness. When I lie down and die, you will feel it like a buffet in your face. Ah, what a revenge! Ha! "'how you'll regret your ingratitude and cruelty.' "'All the while I was growing worse and worse. "'Once I had fallen, my leg simply doubling under me, "'and this had struck Alan for the moment. "'But I was afoot so briskly, "'and set off again with such a natural manner "'that he soon forgot the incident. "'Flushes of heat went over me, "'and then spasms of shuddering. "'The stitch in my side was hardly bearable. "'At last I began to feel that I could trail myself no further.' And with that, there came on me all at once the wish to have it out with Alan, let my anger blaze, and be done with my life in a more sudden manner. He had just called me Wig again, 
I stopped. "'Mr. Stewart,' said I, in a voice that quivered like a fiddle-string, "'you are older than I am, and should know your manners. Do you think it either very wise or very witty to cast my politics in my teeth? I thought where folk differed. It was the part of gentlemen to differ civilly. And if it did not, I may tell you I could find a better taunt than some of yours.' Alan had stopped opposite to me, his hat cocked, his hands in his breeches' pockets, his head a little on one side. He listened, smiling evilly, as I could see by the starlight, and when I had done he began to whistle a Jacobite air. It was the air made in mockery of General Cope's defeat at Preston Pans. "'Hey, Johnny Cope, are you walking yet? And are your drums a-beatin' yet?' And it came in my mind that Alan, on the day of that battle, had been engaged upon the royal side. "'Why do you take that air, Mr. Stewart?' said I. "'Is that to remind me you've been beaten on both sides?' The air stopped on Alan's lips. "'David!' said he. "'But it's time these manners ceased,' I continued. "'I mean that you shall henceforth speak civilly of my king and my good friends the Campbells.' "'I'm a steward,' began Alan. "'Oh,' says I, "'I can you bear a king's name.' "'But you are to remember, since I've been in the Highlands, "'I've seen a good many of those that bear it, "'and the best I could say of them is this, "'that they'd be none the worse of washing.' "'Do you know that you insult me?' said Alan, very low. "'I'm sorry for that,' said I, "'for I'm not done, and if you distaste the sermon, "'I doubt a second sermon will please you as little. "'You've been chased in the field by grown men of my party. "'It seems a poor kind of pleasure to outface a boy.' "'Both the Campbells and the Whigs have beaten you. "'You've run before them like a hare. "'It behooves you to speak of them as your betters.' "'Alan stood quite still, "'the tails of his greatcoat clapping behind him in the wind. "'This is a pity,' he said at last. "'There are things said that cannot be passed over.' "'I never asked you to,' said I. "'I'm as ready as yourself.' "'Ready?' said he. "'Ready,' I repeated. "'I'm no blower and boaster like some that I could name. "'Come on!' "'And drawing my sword, I fell on guard, "'as Alan himself had taught me. "'David!' he cried. "'Are you daft? "'I cannot draw upon you. "'David, it's fair murder.' "'That was your lookout when you insulted me,' said I. "'It's the truth,' cried Alan, "'and he stood for a moment, "'wringing his mouth in his hand "'like a man in sore perplexity. "'It's the bare truth,' he said. "'and drew his sword. "'But before I could touch his blade with mine, "'he had thrown it from him and fallen to the ground. "'Nay, nay,' he kept saying, "'nay, I cannot, I cannot.' "'At this the last of my anger oozed all out of me, "'and I found myself only sick and sorry and blank "'and wondering at myself. "'I would have given the world to take back what I had said, "'but a word once spoken, who can recapture it?' It reminded me of all Alan's kindness and courage in the past, how he had helped and cheered and borne with me in our evil days, and then recalled my own insults, and saw that I had lost forever that doughty friend. At the same time, the sickness that hung upon me seemed to redouble, and the pang in my side was like a sword for sharpness. I thought I must have swooned where I stood. This it was that gave me a thought. No apology could blot out what I had said. It was needless to think of one. None could cover the offense, but where an apology was vain, a mere cry for help might bring Alan back to my side. 
I put my pride away from me. Alan, I said, if you cannot help me, I must die here. He started up sitting and looked at me. It's true, said I. I'm by with it. Oh, let me get into the build of a house. I can die there easier. I had no need to pretend whether I chose or not. I spoke in a weeping voice that would have melted a heart of stone. Can you walk? asked Alan. Nah, said I. Not without help. This last hour my legs have been fainting under me. I have a stitch in my side like a red-hot iron. I cannot breathe right. If I die, can you forgive me, Alan? In my heart I liked you fine, even when I was the angriest. Whisht, cried Alan. Didn't say that. David, man, you can't. He shut his mouth upon a sob. Let me get my arm about ye, he continued. That's the way. Now lean upon me hard. Good kens when there's a house. We're in Balwitter, too. There should be no want of houses. No, nor friends' houses here. Do you gang easier so, Davy? Aye, said I. I can be doing this way. And I pressed his arm with my hand. Again he came near sobbing. Davy, said he, I'm no right man at all. I have neither sense nor kindness. I could never remember ye were just a bairn. I couldn't see you were dying on your feet, Davy. You'll have to try and forgive me. Oh, man, let's say no more about it, said I. We're neither one of us to mend the other. That's the truth. We must just bear and forbear. Oh, but my stitch is sore. Is there nigh house? I'll find a house to you, David, he said stoutly. We'll follow down the burn, where there's bound to be houses. My poor man, will you be no better on my back? Oh, Alan, says I, and me a good twelve inches taller? You're no such thing, cried Alan with a start. There may be a trifling matter of an inch or two. I'm not saying I'm not exactly what you would call a tall man. And I dare say, he added, his voice tailing off in a laughable manner. Now when I come to think of it, I dare say you'll be just about right. Aye, it'll be a foot, or near hand, or maybe even mar. It was sweet and laughable to hear Alan eat his words up in the fear of some fresh quarrel. I could have laughed, had not my stitch caught me so hard. But if I had laughed, I think I must have wept too. Alan, cried I, what makes you so good to me? What makes you care for such a thankless fellow? Deed, and I don't know, said Alan. For just precisely what I thought I liked about you was that you never quarreled. And now I like you better. We'll return with Chapter 25 right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. 
Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, Chapter 25 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. In Bulk You Hit Her. At the door of the first house we came to, Alan knocked, which was of no very safe enterprise in such a part of the Highlands as the Braes of Bulk No great clan held rule there. It was filled and disputed by small septs and broken remnants and what they call chiefless folk, driven into the wild country about the springs of Forth and Teeth by the advance of the Campbells. Here were Stuarts and McLarens, which came to the same thing, for the McLarens followed Alan's chief in war, and made but one clan with Appen. Here, too, were many of that old, proscribed, nameless, red-handed clan of the McGregors. They had always been ill-considered, and now worse than ever, having credit with no side or party in the whole country of Scotland. Their chief, McGregor of McGregor, was in exile, the more immediate leader of that part of them about Balkyhitter. James Moore, Rob Roy's eldest son, lay awaiting his trial in Edinburgh Castle. They were in ill blood with Highlander and Lowlander, with the Grahams, the McLarens, and the Stuarts, and, and Alan, who took up the quarrel of any friend, however distant, was extremely wishful to avoid them. Chance served us very well, for it was a household of McLarens that we found, where Alan was not only welcome for his namesake, but known by reputation. Here, then, I was got to bed without delay, and a doctor fetched, who found me in a sorry plight. But whether because he was a very good doctor, or I a very young, strong man, I lay bedridden for no more than a week, and before a month I was able to take the road again with a good heart. All this time Alan would not leave me, though I often pressed him, and indeed his foolhardiness in staying was a common subject of outcry with the two or three friends that were let into the secret. He hid day by day in a hole in the braes, under a little wood, and at night, when the coast was clear, "'would come into the house to visit me. "'I need not say if I was pleased to see him. "'Mrs. McLaren, our hostess, "'thought nothing good enough for such a guest. "'And as Duncan, too, which was the name of our host, "'had a pair of pipes in his house, "'and was much a lover of music, "'this time of my recovery was quite a festival, "'and we commonly turned night into day. "'The soldiers let us be, "'although once a party of two companies "'and some dragoons went by in the bottom of the valley, "'where I could see them through the window "'as I lay in bed.' What was much more astonishing, no magistrate came near me, and there was no question put of whence I came or whither I was going, and in that time of excitement I was as free of all inquiry as though I had lain in a desert. Yet my presence was known before I left to all the people in Balkyhitter and the adjacent parts, many coming about the house on visits, and these, after the custom of the country, spreading the news among their neighbors. The bills, too, now had been printed. There was one pin near the foot of my bed, where I could read my own, not very flattering portrait, and, in larger characters, the amount of the blood money that had been set upon my life. 
Duncan Dew and the rest that knew that I had come there in Alan's company could have entertained no doubt of who I was, and many others must have had their guess. For though I had changed my clothes, I could not change my age or person, and lowland boys of eighteen were not so ripe in these parts of the world, and above all about that time, that they could fail to put one thing with another and connect me with the bill. So it was, at least, other folk keep a secret among two or three near friends, and somehow it leaks out, but among these clansmen it is told to a whole countryside, and they will keep it for a century. There was but one thing happened worth narrating, and that is the visit I had of Robin Olg, one of the sons of the notorious Rob Roy. He was sought upon all sides on a charge of carrying a young woman from Balfron and marrying her, as was alleged, by force. Yet he stepped about Balkyhitter like a gentleman in his own walled policy. It was he who had shot James McLaren at the Plowstilts, a quarrel never satisfied, yet he walked into the house of his blood enemies as a writer might into a public inn. Duncan had time to pass me word of who it was, and we looked at one another in concern. You should understand, it was then close upon the time of Ellen's coming. The two were little likely to agree, and yet if we sent word or sought to make a signal, it was sure to arouse suspicion in a man under so dark a cloud as the McGregor. He came in with a great show of civility, but like a man among inferiors, took off his bonnet to Mrs. McLaren, but clapped it on his head again to speak to Duncan, and leaving thus said himself, as he would have thought, in a proper light, came to my bedside and bowed. "'I'm given to know, sir,' says he, "'that your name is Balfour.' "'They call me David Balfour,' said I, "'at your service.' "'I would give you my name in return, sir,' he replied, "'but it's one somewhat blown upon of late days, "'and it'll perhaps suffice if I tell you "'that I am own brother to James Moore Drummond or McGregor, "'of whom you will scarce have failed to hear.' "'No, sir,' said I, a little alarmed, nor yet of your father, but Gregor Campbell. And I sat up and bowed in bed, for I thought best to compliment him, in case he was proud of having an outlaw as his father. He bowed in return. But what I am come to say, sir, he went on, is this. In the year 45, my brother raised a part of the Gregera and marched six companies to strike a stroke for the good side. And the surgeon that marched with our clan and cured my brother's leg when it was broken in the brush at Preston Pans was a gentleman of the same name precisely as yourself. He was brother to Balfour of Baith, and if you are in any reasonable degree of nearness, one of that gentleman's kin, I have come to put myself and my people at your command. You are to remember that I knew no more of my descent than any cadger's dog. My uncle, to be sure, had prated of some of our high connections, but nothing to the present purpose, and there was nothing left me but that bitter disgrace of owning that I could not tell. Robin told me shortly he was sorry he had put himself about, turned his back upon me without a sign of salutation, and as he went towards the door, I could hear him telling Duncan that I was only some kinless loon that didn't know his own father. Angry as I was at these words, and ashamed of my own ignorance, I could scarce keep from smiling that a man who was under the lash of the law, and was indeed hanged some three years later, should be so nice as to the descent of his acquaintances. Just in the door, he met Alan coming in, and the two drew back and looked at each other like strange dogs. They were neither of them big men, but they seemed fairly to swell out with pride. Each wore a sword, and by a movement of his haunch, thrust clear the hilt of it, so that it might be the more readily grasped and the blade drawn. "'Mr. Stewart, I'm thinking,' says Robin. "'Troth, Mr. McGregor, it's not a name to be ashamed of,' answered Alan." "'I did not know you were in my country, sir,' says Robin. 
"'It sticks in my mind that I'm in the country of my friends, the McLarens,' says Alan. "'That's a kittle point,' returned the other. "'There may be two words to say to that, but I think I will have heard that you are a man of your sword. "'Unless you were born deaf, McGregor. "'You will have heard a good deal more than that,' says Alan. "'I'm not the only man that can draw steel and appen, and when my kinsman and captain, Ardshiel, had a talk with a gentleman of your name, not so many years back, I could never hear that the McGregor had the best of it. "'Do you mean my father, sir?' says Robin. "'Well, I would not wonder,' said Alan. "'The gentleman I have in my mind had the ill taste to clap Campbell to his name.' "'My father was an old man,' returned Robin. "'The match was unequal. You and me would make a better pair.' "'I was thinking that,' said Alan. "'I was half out of bed.' "'and Duncan had been hanging at the elbow of these fighting cocks, "'ready to intervene upon the least occasion. "'But when that word was uttered, "'it was a case of now or never, "'and Duncan, with something of a white face to be sure, "'thrust himself between. "'Gentlemen,' said he, "'I will have been thinking of a very different matter, whatever. "'Here are my pipes, and here are you two gentlemen "'who are bathed the claim pipers. "'It's an old dispute which one of ye is the best. "'Here will be a broad chance to settle it. "'Why, sir,' said Alan, still addressing Robin, "'from whom indeed he had not so much as shifted his eyes, "'nor yet Robin from him. "'Why, sir,' says Alan, "'I think I will have heard some rumour of the sort. "'Have you music, as folks say? "'Are you a bit of a piper?' "'I can pipe like a McCrimmon,' says Robin. "'And that's a very bold word,' quoth Alan. "'I've made bolder words good before now,' returned Robin, "'and that against better adversaries.' "'It is easy to try that,' says Alan. "'Duncan Jew made haste to bring out the pair of pipes "'that was his principal profession, "'and to set before his guests a mutton-ham "'and a bottle of that drink which they call Atoll Bros, "'and which is made of old whiskey, "'strained honey and sweet cream, "'slowly beaten together in the right order and proportion. "'The two enemies were still on the very breach of the quarrel, "'but down they sat, one upon each side of the peat-fire, "'with a mighty show of politeness.' McLaren pressed them to taste his mutton-ham and the wife's brose, reminded them that the wife was out of Atoll and had a name far and wide for her skill in that confection. But Robin put aside these hospitalities as bad for breath. "'I would have you to remark, sir,' said Alan, "'that I have not broken bread for near upon ten hours, which will be worse for the breath than any brose in Scotland.' "'I will take no advantages, Mr. Stewart,' replied Robin. "'Eat and drink, and I'll follow you.' Each ate a small portion of the ham and drank a glass of the brose to Mrs. McLaren, and then after a great number of civilities, Robin took the pipes and played a little spring in a very ranting manner. "'Aye, you can blow,' said Alan, and taking the instrument from his rival, he first played the same spring in a manner identical with Robin's, and then wandered into variations, which, as he went on, he decorated with a perfect flight of grace notes, such as Piper's Love, and Call the Warblers.' "'I had been pleased with Robin's playing. "'Allen's was excellent.' "'That's no very bad, Mr. Stewart,' said the rival. "'But you show a poor device in your warblers.' "'Me!' cried Allen, the blood starting to his face. "'I give you the lie.' "'Do you own yourself beaten at the pipes, then?' said Robin. "'That you seek to change them for the sword.' "'And that's very well said, Mr. McGregor,' turned Allen. "'And in the meantime,' laying a strong accent on the word, "'I take back the lie. "'I appeal to Duncan.' "'You need appeal to nobody,' said Robin. "'You're a far better judge than any McLaren in Balkyhitter. 
"'for it's a God's truth "'that you're a very credible piper for a steward. "'Hand me the pipes.' "'Alan did as he was asked, "'and Robin proceeded to imitate "'and correct some part of Alan's variations, "'which it seemed that he remembered perfectly. "'Aye, you have music,' said Alan, gloomily. "'And now be the judge yourself, Mr. Stewart,' said Robin, "'and taking up the variations from the beginning, "'he worked them throughout to so new a purpose, "'with such ingenuity and sentiment, "'and with so odd a fancy and so quick a knack in the grace notes, "'that I was amazed to hear them. "'As for Alan, his face grew dark and hot, "'and he sat and gnawed his fingers "'like a man under some deep affront. "'Enough!' he cried. "'You can blow the pipes. "'Make the most of that.' "'And he made as if to rise.' But Robin only held out his hand as if to ask for silence, and struck into the slow measure of a pibroch. It was a fine piece of music in itself, and nobly played, but it seems, besides, it was a piece peculiar to the Appen Stewarts, and a chief favorite with Alan. The first notes were scarce out, before there came a change in his face, when the time quickened, he seemed to grow restless in his seat, and long before that piece was at an end, the last signs of his anger died from him, and he had no thought but for the music. "'Robin O,' he said, when it was done, "'ye are a great piper. I am not fit to blow in the same kingdom with ye. Body of me, ye have mere music in your sparring than I have in my head, and though it still sticks in my mind that I could maybe show ye another of it with the cold steel, I warn ye beforehand, it'll no be fair. It would go against my heart to haggle a man that can blow the pipes like you can.' Thereupon that quarrel was made up, all night long the bros was going, and the pipes changing hands, and the day had become pretty bright, and the three men were none the better for what they'd been taking, before Robin as much as thought upon the road. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters from Kidnapped. Join us next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, for two brand new chapters. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.